Isaac Newton once said, If I have seen further than others, it is by standing upon the shoulders of giants. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about retelling classic stories. This is kind of a big topic for us. Let's just outline what we're talking about. What are we talking about? Why are we talking about classic stories? What are our classic stories? The classic stories we're talking about today are things like myths, legends, literature, television, movies, basically any story that has really resonated with people to the point where it's considered a classic. And in many cases, that's going to be pieces of folklore, especially things that uh, harken back to the early days of the modern storytelling traditions. So for this, we're going to talk about not just the classic stories, but a few of the beats of the classic stories, the parts of the classic stories that are important. So let's just get started here. The first thing that we're going to talk about are monsters. Every monster carries with it a story. Right. Monsters in D&D all come from different sources. And D&D does have some original monsters of their own, and those become storied in their own way. But in many cases, the stories that accompany the monsters when they were brought to D&D are kind of the inspiration for the monsters. Goblins and orcs, for example. Those come back to Tolkien and his writings. And in those writings, these are malevolent creatures that have warped history that are usually descended from the same common ancestor as humans and other creatures, but are somehow twisted by dark magic. And that feeling typically comes through in fantasy orcs. When you bring orcs out, there's an expectation of this chaotic corruption, sort of uh, violence building upon itself. You're viewing these violent marauding hordes, giant groups of chaotic goblins, a huge phalanx of unskilled but still terrifying orcish warriors. They're all going to be bearing their weapons against you. Right, and these all harken back to that Tolkien influence. Dragons, meanwhile, come from several different traditions, but they're all fairly recognizable for what they are. Dragons are always these mythical, mystical creatures of great power, often associated with great wealth. When you think of dragon, what comes to mind as an adventurer when you think of a dragon? Well, when I think of a dragon, I think of a lone knight going to save a princess from a great tower guarded by a dragon, and inside the tower there's all this fabulous wealth. Right, because those are all things that harken back to this dragon tradition that we have. So there is an implied story with dragons. Now, dragons have diversified a lot in this sense. So you've got red dragons, green dragons, all these different colors of dragons, each with a subtly different attitude. Black dragons are a corruption dragon. But dragons are all widely symbolic and have this idea of Arthurian-type power behind them. And they all harken back to these stories of struggles between good and evil, between good authorities and evil powers beyond our control. There's that implied story with a dragon. Another example are are hags. Hags are monstrous witches. They form these covens. They have evil, dark, corrupt magics. They come directly from Shakespearean-style stories and old folklore. They form around with their sisters, casting evil spells in the middle of the woods, and 
trying to cast horrible dark magics on things, curses and the like. So there's certain expectations that come with this, you know? You, you think of stories where hags, like like Hansel and Gretel, where hags have this strange house and they lure children there to devour them, you know? And the, these stories carry over and that informs our expectations of what we think of when we think of a hag-type figure. Another example would be uh, the Sphinx. A Sphinx is another monster that strongly implies a story. When you think of Sphinxes, you think of... Well, there's the classic story of Oedipus, where he met the Sphinx on the road, and he asked him, of course, what creature walks on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three legs in the evening? Which I think is one of the new Pokemon? I, I can't remember <laughs> what it's called. Human is evolving. Human is becoming old man. <laughs> Jambi, stop it, stop it. No, uh, the point being that the Sphinx implies the riddle. You know, when one thinks of the Sphinx, one thinks of the riddle of the Sphinx. And also one tends to think of deserts because we think of the Great Sphinx in Egypt. So there's this vision of deserts, of riddles. These creatures have an implied folklore behind them. Now, when we talk about this, what does that mean? Well, it means that there are certain tropes that we come to expect when we see these creatures. You wouldn't have an army of sphinxes in your game that were just mindless killing machines, uh, raising undead and causing pestilence in their wake and, and corrupting the lands, because none of that is sphinx stuff. No, you, you'd imagine an army of sphinxes being led by a great grandmaster magical sphinx who's bound them all together through a great riddle and you go up to him and you answer the riddle of of his army and they all disband and you then fight him one-on-one -on -one, mano and mano and then of course he kills you because he's a Grand Sphinx. Grand Sphinx, right. Exactly. Absolutely. No. The point we're making, though, is that these stories inform us of how these elements can be used. When you think of Sphinxes, you think of riddles. And because of that, it's useful to hearken back to that when you try to bring a Sphinx into your story. When you try to bring orcs into your story, you need to stick to the material closely enough that it's recognizable or you're wasting the trope. I mean, if, for instance, if we have a pair of orc children, Hanlock and Grenlock, and they, they come to this uh, great big house of meat, right? Uh, What's inside the house of meat? Uh, a, a hag. A, a hag is going to try and eat them. Yes, yes. And what else could we put in the house of meat? I don't know. Possibly children that have been ca captured by the... Well, no, that wouldn't really work because it's, it's a house made of meat. What, what eats meat? Um, I don't know, giant piranha monsters? Sure, sure, why not? But the point is, we can deviate from the expected story. And we can absolutely do that. But when we do that, we do build off of the expectations of that story. You couldn't really have, like, um... Th that's the thing, is it's hard to think of a counterexample to this because everything you try to do is wrong. If the House of Meat is full of penguins, you're like, why? Why is the question? There's nothing that alludes to this. There's nothing that implies this. And you could build an elaborate story behind it, but ultimately, you are wasting the trope if you don't play off it somehow. And that's the next thing that we're going to talk about. We're talking about the great legends, the, the stories themselves that have monsters in them, but the, the beats of the story are what we're following. If your adventurers are camping at an inn, and then the next day there's a giant beanstalk outside. We're climbing the beanstalk. We're climbing the beanstalk. We're going up to the clouds. There's going to be a giant up there with some sort of fabulous treasure. Literal or symbolic, all of this stuff is going to happen. That is that is a given. And if you subvert that, you wasted a beanstalk. And don't waste a beanstalk. If you're going to have some illusion 
to a fairy tale, a trope, a legend, something like that, there does need to be a payoff. Can you subvert it? Now, absolutely. Well, okay, let, let's have a little aside here. Let's have some some real talk to the younger people in the audience that, that we might have. I don't know. <laughs> if you have a beanstalk and the player characters climb to the top and you go, okay, you're up in the clouds, what do you do? And if they say they step off, if you make them plummet to the ground, you're a dick. I mean, it might be funny as a throwaway joke, but I mean, if you really do that with your campaign, if you really have this moment of, gee, why do you think that you could walk on clouds? <laughs> no, you're not actually being clever. You're just reinforcing the, the idea that you're kind of a malicious asshole. How about let's not do that? Let's try to stick to entertaining stories that everyone can enjoy. At the very least, if you are going to play things that way, do it Four laughs not to be a malicious jackass. All right, but once again, we're, we're talking about the beats of the story. If you have Jack and the Beanstalk, you're going to want to go along some fairly traditional beats. Usually, the player characters will drop the beans on the ground. The Beanstalk will grow overnight. There'll be a giant up there with treasure. You might have to go back multiple times, and you might have to kill the giant by chopping down the Beanstalk. Right. And all of these allude to that story in a way that makes that beanstalk a useful uh, set dressing that already gives us an implied story arc. And that's the reason to use these sort of implied story arcs, because they automatically resonate with people who are familiar with the story. When you know the story, you immediately have that connection when there is that moment of recognition with, with whatever you are alluding to. Let, let's go a little bit more modern. Jack and the Beanstalk is a folktale. Let's go with Treasure Island. Treasure Island is where we get most of our conceptions of pirates in modern day culture. Right. That's, that's where the uh, parrot on the shoulder comes from, the one-legged pirate, the cook as a pirate, secret pirates aboard your ship, um, the young boy going out on an adventure. The, the, the X marks a spot. X marks a spot, the black spot. I mean, all of those were taken from Treasure Island. Even the, the concept of a treasure map is not unique to Treasure Island, but it is something that Treasure Island kind of confirmed as a modern ideal in storytelling because it, it is a literal map of the story arc. We are going to this Treasure Island to seek this fortune. And all of those parts can be used to great effect. If you are on a ship and there is a cook who has one leg who says, well, I don't trust the captain. We might have to mutiny. If he's not a pirate, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah, I know, right? Or maybe you're doing it very right and you're building up all of those expectations to subvert them. Now, the subversion game is kind of a dangerous game because when you set that up and you follow through on it, you are implying subversion to every time you invoke any sort of trope. And if you always subvert the trope, then you're no longer building any expectation. You're, you're breaking with expectation. There has to be an expectation that things will sometimes work out as expected before working against that has any impact on people. Now, let's talk about subverting the trope a little bit. Let's say you're on a ship and the cook says, we might have to mutiny. I don't trust the captain. Well, why would the cook not trust the captain? Well, maybe because the captain is too concerned about the whale that you're hunting. The horrible whale that took his leg. Okay, we're just shifting to a different story here, but it is, it is interesting that you were saying up that expectation and then subverting it by making this Moby Dick instead. Now, the thing I like about the story of Moby Dick is it doesn't have to be set at sea. All you really have to have is a leader with this ulterior motive for revenge going against an overwhelming near force of nature creature. I mean, you could be in the middle of the woods 
have a hunter who lost his arm to the great albino Bulette. Boulet? Bulette? I, I don't know. Boulet? In, in, in the woods, and suddenly you are in Moby Dick, and it is a great story to follow through with the beats, even if you don't follow it through exactly. That's a big part of what we're talking about here, is looking for the set dressings and beats. The reason classic stories are classic stories is because they resonated with people. They were memorable enough that we all have some part of it in our collective um, expectation for storytelling. So when these sort of when these sort of patterns emerge, they're not only recognizable to us, but they give us something to grab onto and follow in our story. And a big part of this is acknowledging that while we do want to strive for originality in our writing, we always want to put part of ourselves into our stories and make our stories unique to us and our people. At the same time, you have to have these things to, to hang your hat on to really connect your story to your listeners, to your players, so that there is that expectation set up. Here's another thing. What if you have a bunch of seasoned adventurers? If you have players who have been around the block a lot, what can you do? You can retell classic modules for them. You can give them something that they might have seen before or might have even heard of before and run it again. Yeah, gaming gaming actually has now a pretty storied history. We're about one generation into role-playing games. Role-playing games are still relatively new. They don't have quite as long a history as just tabletop games in general, and certainly not as games as a concept, that's for sure. But role-playing games are now far enough in that some of us have fond memories of very old material by modern standards, the stuff that was emerging when role-playing games were new. So Keep on the Borderlands, for example, is one we talked about earlier. Keep on the Borderlands is so rough around the edges, it's almost laughable. But it has some great moments. It has, in the side of this hill, a cave. And in the cave, there's this bugbear who goes, No! No! Come in! Come in! I, I just want to have you for dinner! Come in! Come in! Come in! Now, it should be obvious to anyone that he wants to have you for dinner, like, as in, he's going to serve you as dinner, but it is a recognizable trope. It's part of the the gaming, uh, it's part of the collective unconscious of gamers now. This trope of, of these monsters inviting you for dinner and such things. Uh, the entire, the entire module, as I recall, part of Keep on the Borderlands was that it had this series of caves with all of these monster encounters, most of which were monsters trying to be clever about getting prey, right? Yeah, a good number of them were. And the cave itself was a pretty decent dungeon. It was it was alright. It was nothing to write home about, but I liked it. And it's very recognizable to players who, who played through it. Just the various beats of the story with the with the keep and the shady figures within the keep, right? Uh, the Keep of the Borderlands, that was the one where the keep was like kind of your hideout. And that was one of the things that it did is it was a module where you were supposed to like design your own hideout, design your own like this is this is our base of operations and we're going off into these caverns and this is, uh, you know, th this is our home base and things would happen in the home base as well that would affect the whole thing. Uh, another good module that actually starts out amazingly well is, uh, what is it, Dragons of Despair? You, you yeah, were talking yeah. about Dragonlance there a while yeah, back. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the first module of Dragonlance, and one of the things it does is the incredibly recognizable, you all meet in a bar, you know, you're meeting in a tavern, 
and all the adventurers are meeting, but you already know each other. You know, you've had adventures together previously. So the whole thing is just this coming together of flares, and that's that's the uh, classic everybody meets at the tavern start. We've always got that that beginning where adventurers all meet in a tavern, and you know, it wasn't it the lazy DM thing back in the day to be like, oh yeah, y'all already know each other. Y'all already know each other. We tend to do things like session zeros now in modern games where we we build that stuff up, but this is still kind of the classic beginning to an impromptu adventure. Is just you meet in a tavern and you're all friends. Another classic module that I quite enjoy is the Tomb of Horrors. Now, I know you don't like it, John. I know you really don't. But they've already done the work for updating it. In 5th edition, they have the Tomb of Annihilation, which is a reskinning and modernization of this classic story. In the Tomb of Annihilation, you still have the Grand Lich at the end of this tomb. But you also have this wonderful little town outside, and it also has rules for dinosaur racing. You know, I, I didn't get any further than, than that. I was pretty excited about the dinosaur races. Uh, I haven't really gotten around to reading it. You have to tell me, is it is it kind of what you expect the Tomb of Horrors to be? Is it an ultra-difficult dungeon, or does it just try to reach like the same points and have the same beats in it? It is difficult, but it does do this wonderful thing I like, where it lets the player characters play smart. In the original Tomb of Horrors, there were times where if you started playing smart and started going, oh, well, this is how the tomb works, it would then completely shift and try and kill you. With this uh, Tomb of Annihilation, it has updated to let you continue to play smart, to continue to learn about this lich, to grow as a character and as a player. It's still deadly. It's still dangerous. But it's it's dangerous in a more fair way. Yeah, I, I actually, I do need to get around to reading that. I know that one of the other ones we were talking about was the uh, Module I-6 from the original uh, D&D, which would be Castle Ravenloft. Yes, Ravenloft, which of course has a 5th edition update called The Curse of Strahd. But Castle Ravenloft itself is based so much on the old Dracula stories. You have Brahm Stoker's Dracula, which is then brought into Ravenloft. You have this great oppressive vampire in his castle on the mountain, looming over this oppressed village. Everything is down and dirty and in ill repair. Everyone is fearful of the great devil Strahd. Yeah, so we, we have this vampire story that's building on the most recognizable vampire story. And you you tend to think to yourself when you see that sort of thing that it, it's kind of a copy, but the thing about it is Ravenloft has its own sort of feel, and it gives us an opportunity to bring this sort of story into like a D&D environment in a way that both harkens to the original and gives us a chance to explore the ideas of this story that we could go in different directions with. So I do want to talk a little bit about Curse of Strahd. Right now I'm running it for a group of people, wonderful old school gamers who kind of know a lot about Ravenloft but haven't actually played the original Ravenloft module. And in it, they just had their first face-to-face with Strahd Vanzarovich, the final boss. He came and confronted them. And I was sitting there pondering, going, okay, how am I going to play Strahd? Am I going to give him kind of this kind of Vincent Pricey, well, hello, how are you? And, you know, just kind of like this slimy, seedy person. Am I going to, you know, give him this dark, booming, oppressive, and you, how dare you be in my realm? And then I realized, 
no, this is a classic. I might as well just use the classic and do the worst Bella Lugosi impression that I possibly could. Ah, good evening. How are you? <laughs> no, and and the reason that that's fantastic is because we, we all recognize that reference. That's what we all sort of think of when we think of Dracula. But I don't know, maybe maybe I guess vampires now are, are more the Twilight style to like the younger crowd. Yeah, or if not or if not that, at least like the underworld style. But I think that for for most people, you still do have the expectation that when you think vampire, you're thinking Count Dracula with his cape and his fangs and you know, I want to suck your blood and crap like that. You know, there is that expectation of that sort of a vampire. Let's break this down a little bit. When we're talking about retelling classic stories, we are not talking about killing originality. I know so many people go, no, no, I write my own stories. I don't need to even worry about all of these old classics. I don't need to retell any of this. And what we're saying is, no, go ahead, tell your own stories. Just have a good, solid foundation. Understand what these stories are that you're going against. One of the best classic stories is this story outline, this idea of the hero's journey, uh, which has been kind of modernized for modern day screenwriters and called The Harmon Circle, based on Dan Harmon from Rick and Morty fame. Uh, well, from Community fame or Rick and Morty fame, however you want to go with that. He's He's got quite a few credits to his name, but point being that he, he kind of condensed the hero's journey for a modern storytelling context when you the hero's journey is the, the the hero receives a call to adventure and goes out to seek that adventure passes over into the unknown where he has to adapt to the unknown eventually suffers some sort of symbolic death and rebirth or literal death and rebirth and then an atonement where he gains something greater or accomplishes something greater than he would otherwise have, and then he returns home. Well, the modern version of that, as Dan Harmon wrote it, is for a character to be in a zone of comfort, but then want something, enter an unfamiliar situation, adapt to it, obtain what they wanted, but have to pay some sort of substantial cost, and then return to their familiar situation having changed. That's the cycle of the hero's journey. And the reason we use this cycle is because it hits on all of the beats that we as human beings recognize as being a personal growth arc. Here's a simple example. If you go into a dungeon and at the very beginning there are two massive trolls wielding magical great clubs. And then after that, there's a few goblins and then a few less goblins, and then a few kobolds, and then maybe just one kobold. That There's no payoff to that dungeon. It feels like you already suffered through the most dangerous things. Yeah, it's an anticlimax, and you have to build to some sort of success. Otherwise, it, it's a real letdown if things get easier as they go along. You have to build to this moment of difficulty that has to be overcome as a major challenge at possibly great personal loss, and then some sort of reward be obtained. Otherwise, it's not a satisfying cycle. That's not a personal growth cycle. That's just, you know, a thing. And these classic stories have been written by people who are considered the masters. These stories are there. They are our classics for a reason. Now, we aren't saying completely destroy all of your creativity and originality. We're actually saying the opposite. We're saying craft the story to your players. 
if you're using these old stories, these old tropes, these old bits and pieces, craft them around your players and their expectations and what they are looking forward to. If you are going to throw an army of orcs and goblins, make sure that the players know that orcs and goblins come in waves and armies and can sneak around them and that fighting them would be a tough challenge. If you're going to send them on a Jack and the Beanstalk style story, let them know that yeah, there is a story up the beanstalk. If the player characters go, nah, that's a beanstalk, that seems difficult, and we don't want to deal with that story. We were already on a quest because the Duke sent us to go clear out this mine. Let them go clear out the mine. That is their story. That is the story that they want to play. Yeah, you do have to tailor these things to the expectations of your group. That It's a big part of the challenge of DMing is being able to present something that appeals specifically to your group because uh, no one can know your group as well as you do. These are your friends. These are your players. This is where you bring your knowledge of them to craft a story that works for them. And the last little thing I want to say about this is if you don't want to just run these stories as they are, Read through them. Understand them. Build this foundation. No great contractor goes, I'm going to build a giant castle in the sky. No, they look at the ground and go, that's sturdy ground. I'm going to build a wonderful building on top of that ground. Make sure that you understand these stories and incorporate the bits that you like, leave out the bits that you don't. And if after you've read a few of these stories and you still want to do your own thing, you at least have these thoughts and ideas bubbling around inside your head that might inspire greatness from you. So, what do we have up next? Okay, I think uh, for our next episode, we were talking about talking about expansions, right? It says expansions and more of the same. Yeah, more of the same, right? Isn't that what an expansion should be? More of what you've already got? Mm, Sometimes. I've actually seen some expansions that change the game. But we'll get into that next time. So once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. 500 years before Isaac Newton, John Salisbury said, This is not at all because of the acuteness of our sight or the stature of our body, but because we are carried aloft and elevated by the magnitude of the giants. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.